We live in an age of political polarization and preference bubbles, of economic change, rising threats, and a rapidly changing world. Canada needs to stay relevant. We need more smart conversations. We need to dive into critical issues and big ideas with passion and unrestrained optimism. I'm Aaron O'Toole. Welcome to the Blue Skies Podcast. Welcome to Blue Skies. Today we have an exciting conversation about politics and demographics and a changing Canada. We'll be reciting from Statistics Canada's most recent national survey, the census, and talking about how younger voters will really be changing politics in Canada. We are very fortunate to be joined by one of the leading public commentators on these type of issues, a lawyer, an author, a journalist, a principal at Navigator Limited, a well-known commentator, an author of two books, Rescuing Canada's Right, a Blueprint for a Conservative Revolution, co-authored with Adam DeFalla, and The Right Path. Our guest today is Tasha Carradine. And just off the top, Tasha, Rescuing Canada's Right, The Right Path, why are we always lost so much? All your books are about finding us in the wilderness, like we're a tribe that that uh, can't find its way sometimes. Is, is that a theme in your writing? Uh, it's an unintended theme, Aaron. I wish it wasn't the case. Uh, the first book was written when the two parties um, were getting together and it was asking them to get together. It was, it was written over the span of time and then they fought the election in uh, 2005, 2006 as a united conservative party and uh, they won. Uh, actually, no, they didn't win. What am I saying? They didn't win. But <laughs> like going back, we didn't get a majority. We got a minority government. Um, but it was a time when there was a real sense of, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? Where are the conservatives going to go? And this was the same kind of thing here. And it's been a whirlwind in a way because we've gone you know, full circle from having uh, was it nine years under Stephen Harper to then now almost seven years in the wilderness again and soul searching again as to what's the formula. We've had so many elections in those seven years. That's, I think, why the sense of, um, of you know, what do we do now is, is uh, Im- impelled me to write the second book. And then, of course, there was a leadership that, uh, that happened out of the blue while I was writing the book in the middle of it. And uh, so a lot's gone on for the conservatives in the last two decades. But yes, again, we are trying to find our way. Yeah, I've noticed a lot has gone on in the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I had a front row seat for it. And so for context, just for people tuning in or listening, um, we're recording this the day after the by-election in uh, Mississauga Lakeshore. Obviously, conservatives are a little bit disappointed, but by-elections really um, don't tell the full story. But that will continue these conversations about what is the right magic for the 905? What do we need to do? That's really not what we're going to talk about today. We are going to talk about elements of your book, and you can hold it up, the right path. Yes, here it is. There, there you go. Um, my second child. There you go. <laughs> That's right. And you're a, you're a mom, you know, principal at Navigator, one of the 100 uh, power, most powerful women from a ranking list a few years ago. You're, you're someone that has the ability and a Quebecer who's lived in other parts of the country. You have a really strong ability to look at the big picture and then point out things that a lot of Canadians may not be paying attention to. And this is what I want to dive into with you, this demographic change, because you've talked about it. It's in your book. It's driving public policy, but I think a lot of people don't understand the the major demographic shift. So I'm going to do a quick primer. You can correct me if I'm wrong in any way, but uh, millennials are generally born between about 1980 and 95. That puts them in their mid-20s to mid-30s to almost 40. Uh, 8 million millennials in Canada, 33% of the workforce and 35% of urban dwellers are millennials. Gen Z, 96 to 2005, roughly in their teens to to mid twenties, 4.2 million voters are the Gen Zs we're gonna throw around today. And you and I are are Xers, the kind of forgotten Gen X, but we're about 7 million voters right now, but already being eclipsed by the people behind us uh, millennials. Do I have that sort of landscape right so people know what we're talking about? We do. It's a lot. It's a lot of numbers. And in fact, it is. It's interesting because this is the elections where it's starting to turn in terms of who are going to be the major voting blocks. I mean, traditionally we think, oh, older people vote, right? 
but older people also, well, there will be fewer of them at a certain point, and the millennials will become the main voting bloc. Gen, Gen X, we're kind of squeezed out. We never really were. We weren't the boomers. You know, they were the dominant ones. We, we aren't going to be the millennials. They are going to be the, the dominant of the future. But the Gen Zs are the really fascinating ones because uh, they're the ones who've grown up, first of all, completely digital. Like their lives are online. They cannot remember a time when there were no mobile phones. Um, and that sense of connection online um, is something that they're used to. But it also, on the other hand, makes them almost crave a the sort of traditional face-to-face -face interaction too. In writing my book, I found a lot of that sense of I want someone to talk to me IRL in real life. And that has big implications for politics because we think, you know, we do a lot of it online, but are we really responding fully to what drives voters and what's going to drive those younger voters too? And I think we think of all the generations, we think of the greatest generation, you know, uh, that World War II era. You know, I still go to Sunnybrook to visit some of our veterans there. They have over 40 veterans over 100 years of age in Sunnybrook. But, you know, their children, the baby boomers, StatsCan, their census data that was released uh, in the last year shows for the first time, baby boomers are only a quarter of the population. And in yeah. some provinces, namely Alberta is a great example, uh, there's already millennials outnumbering baby boomers. And what I found interesting, Tasha, and I'd love your comment on the urban dynamic to politics, and of course, you know, Mississauga and the GTA plays into that. Millennials are now outnumbering boomers in yeah. terms of living downtown in cities. Yeah, they are. In fact, Calgary has the youngest downtown in the country, believe it or not. But they also do gravitate to uh, what I'll call the suburban cities. You know, like a Mississauga is a perfect example. It's uh, a city in its own right. But it's also a, a community where a lot of people will still commute to work in Toronto proper. It's part of that GTA belt of cities that have grown up. And because they are slightly less expensive, because they are also a lot of people, you know, a lot of the millennials may have grown up in those cities. They don't need to leave. They want to stay. Um, so you end up with a situation of a lot of, in Mississauga's case, for example, lots of condos, which you associate with, you know, that's a downtown Toronto thing. Oh, no. Mississauga is a city of condos, but also a city of the of a single family home. So it's it's really it's one of those communities that is um, it's not as urban as Toronto in its attitudes, but it is definitely not, uh, you know, purely suburban either. So for conservatives, it's interesting to, to tackle that politically because, um, you know, you, conservatives have kind of abandoned a lot of the urban centers. And we get into that if you want. Um, you know, it's been to their peril. But now you're finding the 905s are becoming increasingly urban, too. And so tackling that vote is going to be it's they really have to understand what's driving those voters and the attitudes that turn them on and turn them off as well. And in some ways, in your view, do you find that not only this growing power or strength of the millennial vote um, is compounding the rural urban dynamic for conservatives too. So there's more um, millennials with some of their uh, proclivities, and we'll get into some specific issues in a, in a moment to, to break it down. But you're having a urban and suburban or exurban area being uh, more centrist, maybe even more uh, left, larger. And they're leaving rural areas, so rural areas are becoming more conservative as the, as the cities may becoming more moderate. Is that a fair simplification? Um, yeah, it's not. It's not simply um, the rural and urban. What you're seeing is something that actually Stephen Harper described in a book he wrote about conservatism um, and populism, which is the somewheres versus anywheres. Uh, somewheres are people who can vote, can rather work anywhere. Um, and, and, sorry, some anywheres are people who can work, work anywhere. They can go, for example, to uh, Dubai and work there. They are professionals who can take their laptop mm -hmm. and go to cottage country and work there. Um, they are generally more educated. A lot of them are in this millennial cohort, the first sort of cohort that also grew up with this, you know, you must be a global citizen of the world kind of attitude, concerned about global issues like climate change, global uh, it's sort of this 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 picture of the world's your oyster. And if you have the right tools and skills, you can take advantage of that. Somewheres are people who are rooted to place. 
And this is a variety of people. Um, it means that your skills are not as transferable or you depend on something that is local, the local you know, uh, canning plant, fish plant, auto plant. That's where you, 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 are, you worked. And when it closes, your town is affected by that. You are directly affected. You cannot transfer out to some, somewhere else. Um, uh, indigenous people in Canada also very rooted to place because of our system of uh, indigenous reserves. That is something that, you know, uh, is, is, a, is a systemic issue that also ties people to community where there may not be as many opportunities. And finally, though, there's within the millennials, there are people also, um, a cohort of millennials, uh, who don't have transferable skills. They may, they may also live in more urban or suburban areas. They, they do live there, but they, can't, they cannot have the mobility um, and the socioeconomic mobility that people who are the anywheres can't. And there's a sense of resentment that has built up over time um, that the Conservative Party also mines uh, somewhat, resentment of elites, and those anywheres are considered elites, even though they may not be rich, they may not be, you know, they may, it's, it's just a sense that they come from a different perspective on the world and the somewheres feel that they are looked down on. And mm -hmm. that is a dangerous thing. It's a populist, you know, it's been used before in history. Um, and you couple that with, you know, the sort of the, the sort of angry young person stereotype that some people use. It's going to be a very toxic thing. And I think it's not a place where our politics should go. I think it should help lift people up not simply, you know, demonize people who have certain advantages. Yeah, I like the fact you uh, you broke it down using Harper's somewhere, anywhere. I used to say often that uh, the liberals thought that uh, everyone in Canada could just take a laptop to Starbucks and do their job, right? It's that right. it's that anywhere. And it's not just the elites. I, I, I know a lot of Canadians, the first Canadians that were vaccinated during the pandemic were the ones all working out of Florida that went and got vaccinated, right? Um, but you're, you're really talking, you know, if you're just building public policy based on those people, it's multiplying the sense of isolation or disenfranchisement, you know, that that the that the somewheres may have and we're seeing this build into into social media of course with the world economic forum and some of the conspiracy theories related to to davos so that the anywheres these global elites are are making life bad um is are these things that that millennials kind of scoff at and and gen z or scoff at or are they sort of swept in by some of these these, you know, online meme culture and 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 pseudo conspiracies that that play into some of that populist dynamic. Um, they are. I mean, there's a subset within millennials. I think it's 11 percent um, who are considered lone wolves. It's actually there's a demographic breakdown. I use this this word because it was a demographic breakdown done by a study that I quote in my book. Um, it was done by Environics, very, very comprehensive, breaking down each of those cohorts, millennials and Gen Z's into sub subgroups. And within the millennials, you have um, people who are, are strivers, uh, diverse strivers. They're the people who would be considered probably the most global, to your point. Um, and uh, at the same time, interestingly enough, a lot of them are conservative. They don't tack left. Um, it's the there's a larger section, though, um, who are concerned with things like uh, environmental policy, big global issue, um, or who are who lean left because to your point, they're, they're sometimes, in fact, just feeling that they are left out by the system. Their complaints about the system are different from the complaints of the right. They think it, it for example, discriminates um, against minorities, it discriminates against indigenous people, it discriminates about anyone who wasn't part of the system when it was built. Um, and so they wanna change it in their way. But millennials as a group are, um, they are more left-leaning than Gen Z. Gen Z is actually the most polarized generation, and that's partly, I think, due to social media. Gen Z lives on social media in a way that no other generation has. Um, they are also the younger gen generation. They are, as you put it, they're, they're the oldest ones are 24, and the youngest ones um, would be they're born in the early 2000s. So they're they're the youngest ones are not even voting yet. Um, of the Gen Zs that vote, 18 to 24 is the only bracket right now. So they're not a huge voting force. But when they are, when they are all of age, only about 6% of them consider themselves center, which is interesting. The rest of them are all either left or right. Um, and they identify with that based on experience, on identity, 
um, a lot and on woke politics, which is an issue that I know that will come up in this conversation because it always <laughs> does. Um, their experience with that has turned many of them into conservatives because they don't like it. So they have a lot of strong opinions, but they also feel they aren't listened to. That's the other piece, right? They want people to listen to them and they don't feel that they're necessarily being heard. Well, that's fascinating because I think one of the things we're looking at with the impact of social media on politics and preference bubbles and, and, and performance culture, all of this stuff seems to be driving the left further left and the right further right. And so you're saying the impact of that generation, Gen Z, who has grown up just sort of accessing their news and, and all information through these through these filters or filter bubbles, um, they identify as left or right, and very few would find themselves in the center, center left or center right. Whereas my, our generation or the one before, vast majority of Canadians were always kind of in that center. And it was, uh, it, you had to have a piece of that, whether you called them blue liberals, red Tories, swing voters, a whole range of things. If you didn't sweep them into your coalition, you weren't going to win a majority government. And we've seen now two elections with, with conservatives winning the popular vote, even in a, in a pandemic where there was you know a lot of concern on a single issue. Um, it wasn't efficient enough to, to lead to seats. Are you seeing this, the Gen Zers as not being swing voters then if they're going to be solidly in these camps and the parties will then have to sort of plant themselves firmly in, in the far left or far right to, to get those votes? Well, there's, there's two phenomenons at play. They consider themselves ideologically, but not politically. And there's a difference because it doesn't, they're not joiners. This is the, the thing with Gen Z is that they will identify on issues and they will identify, you know, this party is speaking my language on this issue. I will vote for it in this election. You know, I interviewed a lot of young people for, for the book and what I heard from them was interesting. One guy um, who was a polyev supporter in the leadership had voted uh, NDP, he had voted Green and this was now, he was now of age, he would be next election, he'd be voting, he said conservative. Um, why? Because in each each of those different elections, the party had offered something that mattered to him in that moment. And it, it's curious because for more traditional voters, we think, oh, if you get your voter when they're 18 and they vote for a certain party, you have them for life, right? That's what you always hear. Get them young. Um, that doesn't hold true for this group. They have principles, but those principles can they, they inform their vote and if a party seems to adopt them or if they believe that party will move forward on what they care about they will go there so it's a different voter they have this it's a it's a sense of it's um, it's swipe rejection, rejection of labels it's swipe, they're gonna swipe. swipe right it's yeah you know, i've i voted on that therefore i'm i'm up i'm I'm free game on the next swipe, I guess is what you're saying. And our Canadian politics, especially the Maritimes and Land Canada, you might know, generational families were Tory or liberal, right? Or, right? And, and so, yeah, get them young or, you know, get them voting in accordance with how their parents voted and you'd well, lock them in. That them doesn't exist with those young voters. Yeah. Get them voting is important. Voting, period. If you don't, if you start, if you don't vote when you're younger, you're less likely to vote. And that holds true for everyone. Um, but the, the way you vote is less true today. So you'll, you'll get them politically engaged. And that's something that I think is very important. You know, young people today, um, they have so many different interests, uh, you know, demanding their time. And so politics has sort of fallen off the list in some ways. They, they can be involved in activism for say, save the whales or, you know, reduce greenhouse gases or fight woke culture on campus. You don't have to join a political party to do that. So political parties are fighting for space. And we're seeing declining memberships in political parties over time because I think there's just so much on offer. And because young people, like I said, they don't want to be tied down by some, by, you know, a label that, 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 that then haunts them for life. They'd rather be a bit of a free agent. It, it's the Putnam thesis, bowling alone. You know, <laughs> there's no bowling leagues. No one's joining yeah. things. People don't belong. Yeah. Um, I guess you could dovetail with that, the decline in trust in institutions, right? If people aren't yeah. belonging to things, if they don't feel a kinship with an institution, um, they, they won't stand up to, to fix it or, or improve it. Uh, they'll be willing to just swipe, swipe and get rid of it. Um, so you're, you're showing already just how younger voters already are changing politics and, and parties have to, have to 
try and appeal to them without changing some of their core values. And I think that would be the challenge for conservatives. We all often joke the liberals, their unifying core principle is victory. And so whatever it takes to win, yeah. they will win. Whereas conservatives were always a brokerage trying to represent um, generally a free market, smaller government, uh, personal responsibility party, but with a whole range from libertarians right through to to social conservatives and Atlantic Canadians where, you know, generally there's a little bit more role for social supports and government intervention, less so in the West, prairie populace. It's much harder for a party with a brokerage approach to start making sure we're not forgetting to talk to these voters. And was that one of the driving forces for you writing the right path was to make sure that we were paying attention to these trends? Yes. 100%. I identified three groups in the book that the conservatives need to get, so to speak, uh, in order to, to form government down the road, because they are the growing groups in Canada. And those are the new Canadians, the immigrant vote, urban Canadians, because increasingly we're becoming a country of cities, as I put it. And the third is the next generations, because eventually, as, as you put it, they're already a larger percentage of the population are millennials um, than boomers. So they are going to be the dominant voting bloc. So what makes them tick? What are they looking for? How do their views dovetail with conservative principles? Um, and there is a lot of dovetailing. There is a lot of opportunity uh, for some of the stuff that conservatives actually forgotten, interestingly enough. Um, you know, conservatism at its root, when Edmund Burke thought, thought it up, essentially, in 1789, uh, or the genesis of it, was, it was a reaction to the French Revolution. And it was a, a sense of we need to have incremental change Wholesale throwing things out is not a good idea. Too many heads roll. It's too destructive. Um, and you have to look huge to tradition, but don't be trapped by it, but look to the past for guidance for the future. And so this, this more moderate approach, actually, um, a lot of millennials are and, and uh, Gen Z's as well um, do feel overwhelmed by the change that has taken place, the, the change in technology, the change in the workplace, all these things. There's a lot to cope with. And what you're finding is that they actually they don't completely reject what was in fact there's an and then just as an aside there's an entire type of decorating style called grand millennial it's basically <laughs> what your grandmother would have doilies and chintz and prints and there's a hearkening to tradition and, and the sort of a comfort in things that were of another time it's very curious but it actually makes sense when you think about all the flux they deal with so for politics one of the traditions of conservatism is local matters, right? Mm -hmm. Politics, government closest to the people. And a lot of young people really see that. They want a sense of community. Like I said, they don't want to just live online. It is a myth that they do that. They get a lot of yeah. information that way. But if you want to engage them politically, if you want to engage them socially, it is in the community. It is face-to-face. -face. They crave that connection. They're also very concerned about mental health. It's a big one, which partly also I think is a result of being online too much. Um, but mental health and knowing a party that cares about mental health is something that is important to them. Well, conservatism actually is concerned originally as well about more than simply economics. We're not just the party of Adam Smith at all. Um, you know, Edmund Burke wrote about the importance of beauty, of uh, culture, of aesthetics, of joy in life, essentially, from things around you and cultivating that. You know, young, young people like to curate their lives. They like to... Yeah. to to have an environment that speaks to them, it's part of what keeps them well and sane. And yeah. conservatives actually buy into that too. So there's, there's a lot of stuff that, that could be mined to yeah. attract voters that isn't really on the agenda right now. Well, I knew this was going to be a great conversation uh, on so many levels. We both have teenage daughters and I've now learned uh, a, a, a new term, uh, grand millennial and Gen Z design. Uh, you know, I'm blown away by my daughter. She's 16, her interest in records, and she's getting a record player. And um, when I look at some of the gene styles and things coming back, so that there is that appreciation for what came before with the modern twist. And as you said, that is essentially Burkean type conservatism where you don't completely throw out the past you respect institutions and on the mental health front i've talked about the little platoons approach with burke where it shouldn't just be the state being the answer it should be uh nonprofit groups faith groups neighborhood associations stepping up 
And that's usually what we saw happening through the pandemic where rotary clubs were making sure elderly people were visited and had food. David Cameron had an initiative that I don't think he maximized called Big Society, which was essentially trying to reinstill that that community sense of solving a problem locally before going to Westminster or Ottawa for a top-down national program for something, right? Uh, you think that that kind of style, the localism, the empowerment politics could really be a way that conservatives could appeal to these voters on economic, social, a whole range of, of grounds. Yeah, I think style is one of the important things. Um, and we forget that. We, you know, we assume that, okay, we will talk to them in the way that, uh, you know, the, the, the medium is the message kind of thing. Oh, they're on TikTok. So let's just make a bunch of TikToks. Well, <laughs> you know what? Uh, Jagmeet Singh tried TikTok for the election. It didn't work out for him. And you would have thought, stereotypically, young voters are left wing. They'll be excited by this. Didn't raise his numbers. So um, I'm not convinced that, you know, that is the, the be all end all of politics. Yes, you send your message out, but the real connection and the deep appreciation for it is is a one to one thing. And I think that young people also, they want to feel like they're making a difference. This is not, you know, new. Um, so engaging them and not just not just spitting information at them, but engaging them, hearing what they have to say, they desperately want to be heard. I heard this over and over again. No one's listening to us. No one's listening hmm. to us. We want to be heard. So, you know, town halls, forums, um, workshops, things of very small, small things. Um, you know, I remember when I was a progressive conservative, my God, how long ago was this now? I was almost 35 years ago. Um, you know, we'd go and do little workshops in nowhere, Quebec, you know, outskirts of Drummondville or Sherbrooke or wherever, uh, piling into someone's car to go and teach people how to run, uh, you know, an election campaign or teach young people skills about how to public speak and, and get their message out or engage in lawn sign campaigns or whatever it was that they were going to do around elections. And those little groups, I mean, it was a lot of work, but those little groups, those people are still involved today. Like I run across yeah. these people that I met today in politics. So it sticks with you. It's that passion. And young people want to find a purpose. So I think, you know, we need to give that to them and we need to say, and this, the conservative party doesn't have a youth wing. I think it's tragedy. I've been saying this for years and I know it was it was abandoned in part because the reform party didn't have one they they believed in equality it's not about being unequal it's about a social sense of belonging young yeah. people want to hang out with their friends they they don't want to hang out with old people they don't hang out with me either my daughters want to hang out with me either you know it's like she wants to be with her friends yeah so you give them a club basically with their friends in politics they'll stick around and the, the conservative party needs well, to be well that's when i first uh saw you and and developed respect for you when you were youth president or you and john williamson were kicking in doors and bringing back the death penalty <laughs> hang them oh, high my. and uh, and i was living in winnipeg getting my wings and went to the big convention it was the first time i'd ever gone to yep. a political event and it was quite something and and it's that belonging that that fraternity uh, that connection that can often draw people into something. So listen, this is we could go on just about the, the nuances of this, but I want to drill down on a few specific areas because we know millennials and Gen Z are, you know, completely digital or largely grown up on that. They haven't grown up with the, sort of the Reagan and Thatcher and the sort of Brian Mulroney, the sort of post-Cold War uh, uh conservative political philosophy, neocons and all this sort of stuff. They're much more attuned to specific issues. And so I want to break down uh, ones that are going to change politics because they're going to demand change. And the first one is, is housing. And last summer, a Leger poll came out and said that one in four millennials have already determined that they will likely never own a home in their lifetime. Um, is that an issue where millennials will demand complete change? And we've seen Pierre talking uh, and doing some good videos on that. Is that going to be an issue that th that generation kicks the door in on? Um, it, it might be. It's just difficult to see how at the federal level that's going to track because uh, housing is chiefly a provincial and municipal level. And you're seeing conservative governments, especially Ontario here where I'm sitting, where you're sitting, at, who are tackling this. Um, because they have the levers. They have the levers on development charges and they have the levers on property tax and they have 
um, you know, believers on zoning. Um, so for the federal government to say and to, to appeal to young voters and say, we're going to solve the housing crisis for you, or it's kind of, it, it doesn't actually, you can't, you know, um, because unless you get those lower levels of government to do it, uh, it will not be. I think that young people, um, and I don't want to be critical here too, is, is there is also a sense of impatience among young people is that, you know, I should be able to own a house now. I should be able to do this now. The reality is a lot of people still live with their parents or a lot of people could not buy a home until they were older or in their 30s or in their 40s in some cases. Um, you know, and I think home ownership in Canada is, is 70 percent, if I'm not mistaken, or roughly we're, we're actually very high for the world. So if if a quarter of us don't buy a home, we're not much different, I think, than we are currently. So I think housing is a crisis now. I do think it's an issue young people are talking about. Um, but I, I think offering them false solutions is not necessarily gonna gonna pan out because they're gonna say, well, well, it's still not fixed. Why haven't you fixed it? Um, I think what you can do, though, I mean, federally, you know, what? Obviously, interest rates, which are not the purview of the government, it's the Bank of Canada, right? Affects very much your ability to buy a home. So I yeah. think that is gonna when that shifts again and goes lower, I think this issue in part will also, um, you know, it will mitigate the impact that we're seeing now, but there is no quick fix. The answer is there's no quick fix to that. Or, to that. or we have to get, a, let me throw something at you that uh, you may have missed because it was the centerpiece to my first leadership race when I came third back in 2017. Um, I proposed changing the, the, uh, tax structure for young people. I probably should have brought it up again, but uh, it was called Generation Kickstart. And it was changing the basic personal exemption for your first five years out of hmm. out of school to essentially let you do a couple of things, either pay off debt. It really came from debt and housing back at the time. And it also had the ability to lure people back because you had the ability to use up that five years of of, uh, of tax room. So if you were luring some people that went to the States, they would still have the ability to have uh, a larger sort of personal exemption for a number of years. Could we, because, you know, the, the boomer generation is leaving massive historic levels of debt, um, a housing crisis for younger people in terms of affordability, would there not be you know, some sort of public interest in saying things aren't the same for these generations starting out. So we should probably change the system to accommodate them. Yeah, I think um, we have to be careful to what generations within the generation to not homogenize it. So there's a, a group of young people are going to talk Gen Z, for example, the university Gen Z, the student Gen Z, and then there's the working Gen Z. This holds true even for millennials. I mean, some people are still students into their millennial years, but it's mostly Generation Z. Um, you know, the experience of a university student who's taking on a lot of debt, to your point, um, is going to be not earning necessarily, uh, you know, big income as they after they leave school to compensate for that versus um, the young person who goes into a trade or goes into a job earlier in their life does not do post-secondary education in the same way, um, will be earning money earlier, gets an earlier start, but over lifetime will not earn Right, will not will be out earned eventually by the people who have the his cohort who has the education. When you're looking at those two groups, I think um, for the university piece, the debt load they're taking on, some kind of relief on that debt load, yes, I think is 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 an issue the conservatives should look at. To your point, whether it's you know you have a different personal exemption structure or you have a way of of um, alleviating that debt over time or anything that can be done in that respect, because that is a burden they carry with them then that haunts them that they can't buy a house if you still have a massive, you know, debt from school, right? Um, for the other group, I think there's an issue that is different because they will maybe have funds earlier on. They may not need the same kind of help earlier on, but as time grows, that discrepancy is going to get wider. And skill sets they have that may have served them as a younger person may not um, they can they can fall into the trap of the somewheres and anywheres we talked about earlier. But they may be then not um, having upgraded those skills, maybe trapped if the industry they're in it or disappears or they're not able to use them anymore. And then they end up being the left behind the older generation you see now who's not, you know, um, able to 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 
to achieve in society what they want and to in some cases even find employment. So I think for young people, that group there, they are more, in fact, when you look at like um, what the conservative party is doing now is they're appealing more to the group that's not in university in a way mm-hmm. they're saying, cause those are the young people who are, are striving, they're making money, they're, they're, they're doing stuff, but eventually over time, you know, they're going to need, they're going to need maybe help down the road to upgrade skills, training, lifelong learning, this kind of culture that we really don't have in this country that we need more of. Um, whereas her, their university peers paradoxically won't need the help down the road. They may need it now. So, you have to, when you talk to young people, you have to be sure who you're talking to as well, because mm-hmm. it won't resonate. The same conversation won't resonate with one group or the other. Yeah, fascinating. Really good insight. Okay. Another hot topic that one that I think our party has struggled with, with younger voters, especially our social issues, you know, here I'll, I'll share a tough personal story. You know, my, my daughter who's 16, you know, 14, 15 over the last few years when I was leader would hear people in the class who knew uh, her dad was the conservative leader saying, oh, the conservatives can't win. They're homophobic. You know, they're this, they're that, they're anti-women. For the younger voters, issues like abortion, issues like LGBTQ rights and equality rights more broadly um, aren't even open to some sort of form of debate. You know, Xers, you know, and certainly our parents' generation they, they were the ones where they saw Pierre Trudeau decriminalize uh, uh, homosexuality, the Morgan Taller decision. We learned all these things in, in our law school. This is almost ancient history to these voters. Um, does the continual sort of challenges our party faces on the social policy front lead a lot of people to just say, I may be open to their economic message, but until they become unequivocal on on rights, uh, I, I'm not going to vote for them. What are your thoughts on this this issue specifically with millennials and Gen Z? Uh, short answer is yes, especially the urban uh, Gen Z and millennials, especially Gen Z. Um, they are very much in favor of equality for all in terms of you know LGBTQ rights. They don't they don't get why anyone would discriminate um, against. Uh, people of, of same-sex orientation who want to get married or do other things, um, they have a more fluid concept of gender. And that's been, you know, that's something that has been, I don't know if a pendulum is going to swing on that as well. Um, it's part of it's part of the woke conversation that we can have too, because... Um, I'm saving that for the end. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, well, the thing is, you know, it, it's not it's not limited, though, to people who are woke in the sense of, of, of being more accepting um, or understanding of different people's points of view. It's kind of a live or let live attitude. It's like, okay, you are what you are and that's fine. Um, so don't restrict that. Government shouldn't be telling people what to do, but it shouldn't be also be telling them what they can't do as in you know, the pronouns conversation and all this, the, the woke piece, which we'll, we'll talk about. But when it comes to um, you know, abortion rights too, like, and that's just not even this young generation, but you look at certain parts of the country like Quebec, for example, uh, you know, it, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, an issue that's considered settled. Um, other parts of the country, not necessarily as much. And you, you go to Alberta, Saskatchewan, there are pockets of voters who are very much in favor of revisiting and uh, saying, okay, well, we, we should have a conversation around this. But young people tend to not see it that way. Um, they tend to say, well, okay, the issue's, the issue's done. Why is this even an issue, right? Yeah. And yeah. they think it's happening in the United States as well. Um, on abortion and that ricochets up here even though we have nothing to do with it um the restrictions on abortion there become they feed the politics here and they feed that fear factor that liberals will use to say oh the conservatives have a hidden agenda etc cetera, etc cetera. young people don't like hidden agendas they like to know what they're dealing with yeah. so if you're not honest with them if you're not upfront and genuine that's another piece we haven't really talked about as much but if you're not genuine on these issues they will sense it they will see it and they will reject you you have to you know walk the walk so to speak um so, yeah, on those issues, the Conservative Party has to, uh, I'd say, get with it, but um, it has to understand where young people are coming from. But those are not election issues. They are considered settled issues. Yeah. Let me probe that a little bit then, because we, we look a bit at the Gen Z, particularly young men. Um, free speech becomes a real touchstone for them. And you see 
the sort of adoration of Elon Musk and, and things like this for absolutism on free speech and what's happening to Twitter, some good, some bad. There's a whole other show. But how do those younger voters square the right for somebody to bring up uh, sex selective abortion or, or some of these ways that people that have pro-life orientation want to advocate in parliament? How do they square it off on issues they think are completely settled is the free speech, you know, are they able to say, well, free speech doesn't mean we're ever going to do something there, but we have to respect a, a wide debate on issues. How do they square that circle? Because there is almost a free speech absolutism on, with some younger, particularly young men. Uh, I've noticed it when I've encountered them personally. Um, how do they square that circle when these decisions on rights are, are, are long decided? Well, I can't speak for all of them. I mean, there are subsets. There are conservative young people who are very pro-life, for example, that, you know, there's movement in this country, too. There's some groups that are, um, but they generally are in the minority. They do not represent, and statistically, you can see this, the the, the mass of uh, voters of really any age in our country, and certainly not the younger ones. Um, but yeah, free speech and free speech on campus is a big thing. I think most young people, the young people I've talked to were dead set against uh, limits on speech, but at the same time, you know, they know Canada has hate speech laws. So they, they know there are guardrails. So to them, it's like, okay, well, the guardrails are there. So we're good. Like you're not, as long as you're not inciting a riot or encouraging someone to kill someone, um, you know, why should I not be able to talk about anything? Mm -hmm. um, so they're, they're, they're open-minded in terms of conversation and, and the right of people to talk. Um, at the same time, though, that, you know, when it comes to certain issues, they they get turned off, especially when older people try and lecture them on it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, mm -hmm. It's a difference if they have a conversation among themselves um, versus uh, someone shutting them down or telling them what to think who's uh, from a different generation. And they're absorbing their news like none of them watch. Uh... Uh, sorry, CBC, but none of them watch Power and Politics or or yeah. or they're they they're all consumer. No, yeah. I, I found this when when the Roe v. Wade was struck down in the U.S. One of the women my wife follows on Instagram put out this thing of, you know, here are conservatives in Canada that support what is happening in the states, and my name was was listed. And you know, you know, I have a lot of wounds from uh, from being very very clearly pro-choice and running in a national election on that, but this would go on Instagram. So, you know, people are being fed uh, things not through normal news sources, I guess, you know, the free speech and then the whole ability for people to not really see real journalism because of social media, that's gonna compound the challenge for conservatives, I guess, to correct attacks against us, the sort of hidden agenda you were referring to earlier. Yeah, well, it does. It does a few things. What social media, the social mediatization of news, um, it creates a situation where everyone's a journalist, so nobody's a journalist, right? If there's no, if you're just putting out information that you got secondhand from someone or you cribbed from someone's feed, you're not a journalist. You could be a spreader of misinformation. In fact, you're just, you know, it's it, it's your. It really comes down almost to your opinion as to what you think the truth is. I sound weird, but that's really it's what people think. Each everyone has their own truth in the end. Um, it's it's very it's disheartening. As a former journalist, um, I look at this, and as someone who continues to write, actually in the Post opinion column, I I am very concerned because, you know, that it used to be that yeah, there were gatekeepers on news for a reason. They were editors, yeah, yeah, editors, proofreaders, people who would call up sources and make sure that they weren't made up. Um, you know, this, those were gatekeepers and those gatekeepers still need to be there to have actual. And so when you deride gatekeepers, I get frustrated with that because they're not all the same nature. There are good gatekeepers too. And those, those gates have to be maintained so that people can get correct information and, and trust those sources. Um, young people are starting to curate and trust and they, they will, they will choose what sources they trust. They, they're getting more and more media savvy. I mean, I even look at my own daughter, like she's taught media literacy at school. They, you know, question this ad or this, this post and where's this from? And we have conversations too of, you know, you can't trust everything on the internet and how mm -hmm. do you know what's real and what's not? Um, and but, the internet is forever as a remind my, yes. my kids forever. <laughs> so be very smart and, and responsible. Um, yes. Let me just, before I, you jump off again, 
Um, the gatekeeper issue is a good one. We've seen the Twitter uh, leaks lately that literally they had a little Slack channel where they decided who was going to be upgraded, who was going to be downgraded. So there is some some merit to this kind of arbitrary, uh, maybe we get into the whole woke thing now, this arbitrary norms being set by maybe a few people in the social media giants, this sort of stuff. Is that causing this, this kind of massive sort of move left for the millennial generation? Like one stat I got from uh, from Stats Canada, um, 62% of uh, uh, millennials think say that Canada must lead on the environment. And more than that, 64% of millennials are already reducing their single use plastic. You know, are we seeing some of these sort of almost symbolic uh, woke gestures by the federal government to really appeal to that large cross-section of voters who are already practicing that, uh, you know, not using single-use plastic? Like, is, is, the, is the woke generation being defined by this millennial progressive push? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, environmentalism and wokeism are, are linked. Um, I don't think it's just, you know, wokeism is a bigger, bigger thing than that. It's really, um, it's like almost a reverse snobbery in a way it's like okay we know better than you it's an attitude that that permeates it's not just environmental but it's people say i know better than you what's right for you and that could be yes you can't use a plastic bag you must only use paper uh or nothing i don't know (laughs) Um, (laughs) carry your groceries in your hands i mean it gets it gets the point of ridiculousness right um but it's that and that is what people rebel that's what young people rebel against the, the ones who hate woke culture i talk to a lot of them and the single thing is they said, you know, it's this, this, this attitude that we know better than you and we will tell you what to do. And it's not just the government. It could be, you know, university administrators. It could be, um, uh, like you said, on, on uh, social media, it could be people behind the scenes pulling strings and saying, oh, well, you shouldn't see this or you shouldn't talk about this or we know what's, what's right or what's better. Um, that attitude touches a lot of different aspects. The environmental piece, though, I will comment on that because young people generally I've been you know they they are more environmentally conscious because it's been fed to them endlessly at school in the news uh, everywhere they turn and because I think young people also instinctively they often they want they want to do they are more idealistic they want to cause and I mean who doesn't love nature animals like it it's 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 an easy one in a sense and they're terrified some of them terrified about you know, the, the stuff that the Greta Thunberg will talk about, like the world is going to end and we're all going to boil and we're going to die. And like, it's terrifying to some mm-hmm. people. We don't have a capacity. I mean, if you tell a six-year-old, you know, that the sky is falling, they'll literally believe you, right? They, they don't have the, the logical capacity to say, to distinguish, is this true or not? Um, so a lot of the heavy stuff kids have been subjected to on these issues that they absorb and they go online by themselves and they see it because the parents are, you know, too busy and whatever. And that really affects them. It affects their mental health too. I think a real connection between the amount of information kids have, are subjected to or bombarded with and their mental health because they just can't absorb it all. They can't, mm-hmm. they can't take it all. Their brains are not ready to take it all in. And so I think that, um, you know, it, it's, we do ourselves a disservice almost by, by overloading them with that. In, in fact, staying off the internet, yeah. the advice that we should be giving it, it's hard to do, but it, it's, you know, well, less is more. And, and we, especially in the pandemic, started hearing the terms like doom scrolling and, and you know, it's just yeah. bad news, bad news. And on the environment, yeah, you, you, some of them we're seeing in 12 years, uh, the, the world will pass a point and, and the human race is, is at risk. Like it, there becomes this over the top sensationalism um, that really does affect their mental health. We've seen it. But for conservatives, which you know have always struggled uh, a bit on environmental issues, and what what I tried to do, having seen the 2019 election and the major thing in the 905, was this portrayal as conservatives as climate change deniers, was trying to come up with a a free market, price on carbon, realistic plan. Um, I'll take full responsibility for probably not uh, rolling it out as cleanly as as possible. But there is a lot of reluctance in our movement to even address this issue, mm-hmm. let alone some in our movement and their loud voices in social media 
that don't even think climate change is a real issue. So how do you square that circle for these voters, though the 8 million millennials millennial voters now that have that 64% saying we should show some sort of leadership? How do conservatives meet that if we're still getting sort of caught in in uh, the crossfire from our own movement? Well, it's actually hearkening back again to the principles of conservatism. I mean, in the word conservatism, there's a word, conserve, right? <laughs> and, con- and, and conservatives were the individual environmentalists. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt, um, you know, created parks in the United States, was all about conserving the land for future generations, and, and he was a Republican. Um, Margaret Thatcher, ironically, was the person who first sounded the alarm on climate change. Biggest conservative you'll find, right? I don't think she had any idea where the conversation would go, but she 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 was the one who who started that that whole conversation going at the international level. And I think that you know conservatives are, are, have traditionally been been concerned with the protection because it goes back again to for uh, you know uh, sort of heritage and con- conserving and protecting and uh, being cautious about what you do. You don't just hurl yourself into the next technological void. You see how it's going to affect things. Um, and I think that that attitude, it's the attitude you bring to it. And I, I agree. I think, first of all, yes, environment's a big issue for millennials. In fact, statistically, um, a couple of the groups within the millennial, the subgroups that I referenced earlier, specifically one of the turnoffs for them from conservative, they're ready to be conservative, but the environment, but the environment, it's it's an issue that they 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 have trouble because they see the conservatives not taking it seriously. So for first thing is, yes, take it seriously. Acknowledge there are issues. Acknowledge the climate is changing, right? It is. Mm-hmm. It is. I mean, it's, we, have, we have evidence from around the world that there are impacts from human activity, however you want to quantify it. I mean, it just makes logical sense. If you drag carbon out of the ground that's been there for millions and millennia, and then you release it to the atmosphere, you're going to have an impact on it. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it, it, nothing is, is neutral in our interactions. So own that. Say, yes, fine. We've got to find a solution kind of stuff you propose, um, you know, whether it is uh, looking at some kind of carbon tax, not the one that the liberals have right now, but some kind of, of incentive way to incentivize through use of the private sector, through use of government measures, whatever, but incentivize people to change their behavior, not force them, but incentivize. So but they own it, too. Yeah. And that ownership, I think, is a very conservative idea. And I think that that's something that we should look at. And and encourage private sector investments in technology. Absolutely. There's yeah. a big announcement happening on fusion today, uh, nuclear fusion, which would be a huge, huge boon for the world, since most of climate change is from coal burnt for electricity generation. So let's get on to the final topic quickly. We've touched danced all around it, and that's this sort of wokeism and can you break down for us? Because what is interesting is the 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 Z generation, smaller than millennial, but trailing along behind them, seem to have been really affected by this wokeism. And you talked about this earlier, where there's very few of them in the center. They're left or right. So some obviously either embrace it or or reject it. Um, wokeism is everything from this condescension you talked about right through to uh, Sir Johnny McDonald and cancel culture and, and yep. all this. How do we address the past? Well, we do it by socially engineering the future and it's going to mean these groups were ascendant, so they're going to have to pay. Um, is this here to stay with with millennial NZ? Is is wokeism at its, are we peak woke and we're going to be going down? What, what's your view having talked to a lot of people and written on this in Right Path? Um, well, I'm not sure if we're at peak woke. I think it evolves. I think there's pendulums and they swing. I think what you're seeing, I mean, I remember political correctness in the 1980s, which was kind of like, Mm. much like wokeism, in fact. You don't use certain words. Uh, You use euphemisms for things. You you know, um, you wouldn't say disabled or crippled. God forbid, that would be a terrible word. You would say differently abled, for example. And and you would, you would, find a way to not discriminate. And this is the issue, it's, it's a lot of identity politics, right? And so identity politics informs wokeism. It's a sense that, you know, we must enforce equality, essentially, uh, like you said, bring some groups down um, in order to bring others up. It's a sense that the pie is finite, right? You've got to, you can just, you can't grow the pie, you've got to cut the pie into slices and, and accord them, and someone will decide that. And it's not you, it's gonna be, you know, usually government, um, but it's also your teacher. This is the thing. This is, I think, why young people are so affected by it, because they've grown up in a school culture where wokeism has become 
I mean, schools have become very much social justice institutions. Um, I have a problem with that as a parent, simply from a learning perspective, never mind ideological, because when you stuff all these things into the curriculum, you know, it's you, you, you have your anti-bullying day and you have this, you know, day of this and day of that. And there's constant crowding out of the basics that kids are failing at reading, writing, arithmetic, like the things they should be doing in school that they have to learn that I can't teach my child. I, you know, that's why I send them to school. Um, and they're crowded out by this desire to reshape, you know, the child's view of the world. Um, and I think, you know, encouraging children to treat everyone equally. Yes. Respect those values. Yes. But it's taken to a point where some kids feel it's being shoved down their throat and they rebel. And you see that with the kids at university who, like I talked to, they're like, I, I, I've had it. I've had it through high school. Now I'm in university. If I turn in a paper that has a different view from the professor, if I quick question their view of the world, their woke view, I'll get a C. Like, this is wrong. And that, in fact, is the opposite effect that the woke group or, or generation wants to impart because it teaches these kids that it's the opposite. They, they rail against it and they become very angry. Um, you know, social justice to me, of course, we should have justice in this world, but the words have become, you know, they become almost perverted to a certain view of what social justice is. Fairness and equality of opportunity, 100%. Fairness and equality of outcome enforced by someone? No, because not everyone is going to have the same abilities. Not everyone's going to have the same talents. Yeah, not the same chances in life, but that's the part you can work on is the opportunity piece and say, okay, we're going to give you all the tools. What you do with them in the end of the day is up to you, right? We don't do that. We don't give kids in poor neighborhoods the same tools at school and same funding that we do in wealthier neighborhoods where parents will top it up because they can, right? That's something government can address. Say, okay, places where you can't, that's that would be a conservative local idea. Well, there, we're going to compensate for the fact that, you know, your parents are working two jobs and they can't donate money to the bake sale and stuff and have the art program. We're going to fund the art program so those kids have a chance. But the, the point is you're not predetermining the outcome. You're giving people the same tools and, and things and then they will do with it what they will. So that to me is the antidote to wokeism, is opportunity. And I write about that in the book is, is conservative opportunity. Because there's embracing the concept of opportunity, which people think is fairer at the end of the day, including mm -hmm. young people, than simply saying, you know, you get this, you get that because of who you are as opposed to what you can do. Equality of opportunity and as you're referring to it, almost uh, improving our public education system, education yeah. as the great equalizer. So making sure that areas that are underfunded and, and maybe have more challenging uh, outcomes for the students are given more attention. And this identity piece of, of sort of curriculum management and, and um, you know, the inability to discuss issues. I've even heard students tell me about how even discussing certain things in class is, is considered toxic environment. And, and people yeah. will like, it, universities especially should be, and the whole tenure structure is based on allowing uh, proper fulsome discussion, all viewpoints, hear the other side, this sort of thing. So I think making sure that education is not turned into this sort of woke incubator um, is something that I think conservatives can be a part of that discussion. And this millennial generation may be the one to, to start to make some of the reforms that maybe us Gen Xers haven't, haven't had time to do or haven't wanted to wade into. Maybe I, you know, I think, I think a change will, I think change will come. I don't know what's around the corner. It could be, you know, it could be worse. This is the thing, right? Be careful what you wish for. Um, but I, I think that, uh, I think there are enough young people who have lived through this, that they will be the ones to bring change. I don't know if the millennials are the ones as much as the Gen Z who will really be the warriors on this to say, let's push, let's push back and let's say, okay, let's have a sane conversation about this. Let's really look at practical solutions too, not simply, um, you know, victimizing identity politics, that kind of thing. I think they'll say, well, what can we really do to fix this? It's not about blaming and, 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 and isolating different groups. It's about giving people the tools that they can use. So how do we do that? What's the practical way? Does it involve government? Does it involve private sector? Does it involve resources? Does it involve attitude? What's the, what's the change that's needed? So I'm, you know, I'm hoping that they get fed up enough that they, <laughs> they do find that, that place. Cause yeah, we've been complacent on it. We've let it happen, essentially, and not done anything really about it. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion, Tash Keridan, uh fixing things, rescuing <laughs> movements. Like, you're always in there helping. I've got one final question just before we sign off. Sure. 
uh, lawyer, journalist, thinker, author, mom, bilingual, lived around the country. When are you running for office? <laughs> I ask myself that question every day. <laughs> I don't know the answer yet. I'll tell you what I know. <laughs> well, listen, thank you for contributing to public policy dialogue. I think we need more longer form discussions in this age of of uh, doom scrolling and swiping. I think the more we can have smart, thoughtful commentary, challenge uh, uh, voters, challenging the status quo and looking at the horizon. This is called blue skies for a reason. When you're blue skying something, you're actually trying to be optimistic, come up with solutions. I think conservatives this 8 million voter strong millennial group now, just behind them, the Zs, they're going to demand us have smart conservative solutions on a range of policies. And I think you've started the conversation. So thanks for blue skying all this with me today, Tasha. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity, Aaron. Thank you.